Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? Nothing much. I'm actually recovering from my homecoming, my 10-year reunion from college. Um, it took an unexpected turn. Mm. I um, So you know how you when you're at homecoming, you're eating, you're doing a lot of drinking, you know, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, so I thought that maybe I had just like went too hard the first night because I, I actually spent the entire first night just sick. Like, man, I just I went a little bit too hard. But come to find out, my niece gave me the stomach flu and it didn't show oh. up until I got to homecoming. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. So I, yeah, I, I toughed it out. I still like went to the game. I was like, I bought a little fleece blanket with my school's logo on it. And I was like wrapped up like halfway in the stands, like sleep. Like I'm going to be, I'm going to be out in these streets. Lord, it was Ooh. bad. Yeah, stomach, stomach foods are no joke, man. Those things always take me out. Yeah. What about you? What's going on with you? Uh, not much, you know what I mean. Just the same old, same old. I, I, I gotta start. I feel like I gotta. I, I guess because I've just been working and things been going on. I haven't really been doing anything like outside of the norm of like working, school, and, and my normal routine. So yeah, nothing, nothing going on with me this past week for real. For real. That's how it be sometimes. Um, yeah. You know, just on that grind. But I do. I want to say that means you you need to take some time. You need to treat yourself. I know. Right? I need to. <laughs> I got to treat myself so at least I can come back and tell tell the listeners that I've done something. Yes, because we want Ty to be healthy. And Lord, sometimes when you be on that grind, you ain't thinking about, you know, your health. So take a step back. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll figure out something. Try to have something to report back to y'all next week. Okay. <laughs> well, speaking of reporting, and you ain't got nothing going on, but it's it's a lot going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Let's get with that uh, old Lord news then. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lore news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... So I I have an update. Um, Do you remember back in April, a Michigan man pulled out a shotgun and shot at a teenager who rang his doorbell to ask for directions after missing the school bus? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we have some positive news related to that incident. Just this past week, jurors found him guilty of assault with intent to do great bodily harm as well as possession of a firearm in commission of a felony. He, um, of course, they haven't done sentencing, but he can receive up to 12 years. And, you know, we talk like we often like talk about topics where it seems like justice won't happen. And so just wanted to put that out there because it's like, you know, not everybody gets away with it. 
Mm-hmm. No, that's good. That's good because I mean it was crazy. The kids were just looking for directions to go to school, and you getting extreme like that and pulling out a shotgun on him. He's running away. Like no, there needs to be some repercussions for that. That's insane. So, so I'm glad the justice system is is working out. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think what was important about that is that the the victim was still alive to tell his side of the story. You know, yes, because we all know what happens when you know, somebody actually does cause that great bodily harm or cause the Mm -hmm. death, they get to make up whatever story that they want. And this guy could have said anything about this young boy if he hadn't lived to tell his side of the story that I missed the school bus, I didn't have a cell phone and I didn't know how to get there. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's really Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Good point. Good point. Um, this second story is a little wacky. So Ty, have you ever like had some leftovers or like a special snack that you bought yourself and you're like, man, I can't wait to get home to eat that. And then you come home and somebody ate it. Yeah, of course. Growing up with, growing up with brothers. How did that make you feel? You know, you are upset, especially when you're looking forward to it. You know, you're like, I'm hungry and I can't wait to go home. And maybe it's like some leftover pizza or a sandwich or something. And you go home and it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. You pretty upset. <laughs> you got some words for somebody. I know. I did. Well, it, let's keep we should all keep it at words, people, because one South Carolina teenager shot his cousin in the chest. He critically wounded him after warning him not to eat his salt and vinegar potato chips. Oh, no. Come on. Yo, I will buy you some salt and vinegar potato chips. It's never that serious, guys. Okay. It's not that you, okay. You can keep it at words. You could be upset, but do not shoot somebody in the chest because they ate your potato chips. It's not that serious. It's funny, but that's that's not even the first time I've heard of that. Like, I've read, like, this news story about the past, how... People got to fighting over the last pork chop. I mean. Oh, my goodness. You know, is I guess we always, I wonder if there's research on like thing called food rage. You know, it's talk about like road rage. Yeah. But this is definitely like food rage situations. Like you're going extreme for, you know, something that isn't, isn't that serious. And it, maybe it's a buildup. It's like, that's, that's the last thing I had. You took the last thing I owned. I, I don't know. But yeah, we need to look into that. Um, speaking of crazy stories, um, that do have a happy ending, but it's kind of still crazy. So last week, a woman called the police on a nine year old boy, accusing him of sexually assaulting her at a convenience store. (laughs) Did you hear about that? heard about this one. Okay, and if you see the video, the little boy is like distraught, so upset over like this allegation that this crazy woman, you know, I said like he, you know, he tried to do something to her. Well, the convenience store actually released video of the incident. And what actually happened was a boy is walking in front of his mom. She's kind of guiding him through the store. It's a packed store. He has on his backpack. He is not even looking at this woman who is like standing up over the counter, but she's like leaning over. So her back is kind of like, you know, pushed out a little bit. Do you want to know what assaulted her? Mm, what was his it? His backpack. Oh my gosh, man. Uh, he wasn't even looking at her, thinking about her like, like it's crazy. And then she goes on this 
whole rant and calls the police on him. Like, come on, people. See, this, this is, this is, good. yeah, again, you know, we think we're getting out of these situations, but every, you know, there's always another story popping up. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the babysitter situation. But yeah, now this man, like, I saw the video and, you know, the kid was literally just walking by literally walking by book bag grazed up against her and then now she's screaming sexual assault on the on a nine-year-old or whatever you know and putting the family through all this and calling the police and all this nonsense it's, there has to be some kind of like i don't know some kind of repercussion some kind of consequences for people that are just using and weaponizing the police like this and, and are not justified in it mm-hmm. and i will also say like most people have common sense. Like, I'm not going to pretend like I haven't been in like a, a very like packed store or maybe even on a train or something like that. And something brushes against me. You can very well tell something brushing against you versus like somebody groping you and assaulting yeah. you. Like, I, we've all been grazed by something. So she just wanted a trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was, she did. And, uh, and again, that, looking at the video, there's, there's nothing there that says like the kid was just walking by. So she really took that little grazed in touch and blew it way out of proportion, you know, and calling the police and saying somebody sexually assaulted. I mean, that's just problematic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And poor child that had to go through all that. But luckily the tape came out. Luckily this woman is now being held accountable. I've seen her doing like some interviews on the street and people have been harassing her and videotaping her and, you know, calling her out for her nonsense and calling her racist. Um, and so, you know, this is this is the repercussions of your behaviors, you know, especially with social media. Now you can't do these things and hide anymore. Yes. Uh, they they will find they you. Will find social you. media will find Corner you store and care. expose you. And don't come out crying and talking about how sorry you are. No, no, no. You're not the victim here. You are not the victim. Yes. Um. So our last oh lord news story, um, which is a huge topic. It also received its own Saturday Night Live skit last night <laughs> or Saturday. Yeah. Um, did you watch the Kanye West Trump interview? Yeah, I've seen I've seen the, the snippets of it. I didn't watch it in its entirety, but there was enough there for to make me really uh, say, oh, Lord, and uh, <laughs> shake my shake my head. man. OK, tell, tell me some of your oh, Lord uh, segments. Well, Kanye's bugging. I mean, you know, every time, I mean, I've, I've, my, me personally, I've stopped supporting him. I've not given him any listens as far as music, anything as far as money. You know, I've just completely just been like, enough is enough. Um, you know, Kanye was, you know, down for the people at one point, but now he seems to be doing, uh, the complete opposite. Uh, and, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like he was on the up and up. He was taking his meds. He had his, you know, mind right, but now, He's reverting uh, back to what we've been seeing. Uh, so a t- a pit, uh, what he did was, if, for those of you who don't know, he went to the White House to have lunch and have a meeting with President Trump, kind of going on the coattails of what his wife was doing is kind of talk about prison reform, um, which is already an issue because Kanye West already admitted that he does not read uh, about these things. It is not well informed. So it's very scary that he's now going in the president's office to talk about something that we all know and he already admitted to. He doesn't read about and is not knowledgeable mm-hmm. about. Uh, but then he walks up into the office. Of course, he has a MAGA hat on. 
Right. Um, he's telling everybody, he's talking about how much he loves Trump. He gives Trump's a hug. In fact, Trump said that, you know, oh, you know, you know, Kanye is preaching that he likes me. And then Kanye kind of interrupted him and said, stop him. Like, no, I love you, Trump. Like, I love you, man. Uh, Get up and gives him a hug. <laughs> Another oh Lord moment. He said the MAGA hat gives him superpowers. The MAGA hat gives him superpowers, you know, um, and, you know, it's just a, it's just a lot of issues going on with this thing. And, uh, and it's really problematic because, um it's a stunt uh, for not just Kanye, but the president is using him. Uh, and, and even Trump kept saying like, you know, you know, thanks to Kanye helping me with the African-American vote, getting me African-American support, yada, yada, yada. And putting this message out there, which is not true. Um, but using Kanye as this, you know, image to, to promote that message that he's doing well with the African-American community. Well, well um, Kanye is saying that the Democrats using Utah. Yeah, you, that's, that's you sleep. I, that's what Kanye is saying as well. And he keeps going back to that thing. We need to have a conversation on this, too, because I think it'll be important for our listeners at some point, maybe next week, especially when we get close to elections. Uh, but he kept that point that, oh, you know, uh, blacks used to be Republicans or, you know, Republican Party used to be for the blacks and and all that kind of stuff. Going back to that without really explaining how the change happened or why it happened. Uh, that's why Kanye is saying, oh, the Democrats wasn't always for the black people, yada, yada, yada which is, again, he's just not informed on why this is the case. Yeah. It's probably you know what? Uh, that is a discussion because I, what's scary to me is that you would think that people would see this red and just, and a lot of people were, but I actually did see just people on my Facebook, like just, you know, everyday black people, um, particularly black men, Kind of like say, you know, give a nod like, okay, you know, everybody's saying he sound crazy, but he was saying like some real stuff. And one thing that I saw them kind of like harping on, which they said would not only result in them voting for Trump, but he would win in a landslide um, is because Trump, I mean, not Trump, <laughs> Kanye came in there with Larry Hoover's lawyers Oh, yeah. And, you know, kind of talk to Trump about, you know, how he needed to be released. And so this one particular person on Facebook was like, yeah, if Trump released Larry Hoover, he going to win in a landslide because, you know, Larry Hoover was doing this, you know, positive things for the black community. You know, they, they were saying these things and I was just listening or watching the discussion. I didn't insert myself, but I was just like, oh, Lord. Yeah. And that's the scary thing about it. You know, there's there is an impact and there are people who are going to be somewhat influenced by this, you know, and pay attention to it. And then Trump, I wouldn't be surprised right before Alexa, if Trump tries to do something like that, you know, to do a pardon or something like that to, to steal some of these votes or some of these people who are looking for that and thinking thinking that's an overall win for the community. What? So for me, I'm like, OK, he still think the Central Park Five is guilty, Despite evidence exonerating them, but mm -hmm. you think he will release someone like Larry Hoover, who, I mean, I, well, first of all, my introduction to Larry Hoover was the song, you think a big niche Larry Hoover, <laughs> with the word. like I, you know, the way he was presented to me is like, he was this big time you know, person in the street. And I mean, you know, I, I maybe like toward the end, he started doing these positive things, but am I wrong? Was he not like, uh, no, I mean, he was involved in, you know, the, the street life. He got convicted of connection to killing. Um, it was like conspiracy or whatever, some connection, I think some kids died or whatever got yeah. shot, you know, in some gang shooting. And, you know, I'm not sure if he actually did the shooting, but he was connected to it. 
you know, a violent crime. So, so it was probably one of those things where he did a lot of other things in the past and they got him on something that maybe he didn't do. <laughs> have mm-hmm, you ever like, oh, there's a show. I don't know. It could have been The Wire or another show. Oh, no. There was this like Chicago uh, police show to where they arrested this drug dealer. They couldn't get him on that. But there was some type of murder that happened that he actually didn't do. But they were able to convict him on that. Mm, mm, and that's not uncommon. Yeah. You know, that's not uncommon. Um, so, yeah, d- d- why everybody watch out for this Kanye thing. I'm sure we'll have more conversations about it um, probably at the end of the month when we have our current events episode and do a deeper dive into it and maybe call out some of the 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 false accusations he's making about, you know, Trump and the support and mm-hmm. the Republican Party and all that stuff, because uh, we definitely want to address that before y'all go out there and vote so y'all can be well informed and counteract what this guy is saying. Um, and, and interestingly enough, too, on the side note, I'm more on a personal note with Kanye. I watched, you know, uh, LeBron James's show, The Shop on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the second episode and he had Drake on there and they were asking Drake kind of like, you know, Drake was talking about the situation between what happened with him and Kanye and the whole rap beef with Pusha T. And, um, you know, Kanye, man, I don't know. It just seems like he's not a good person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what he did was, you know, he brought Drake in and he, you know, they were working on some of the music for Drake. Um, and, you know, he brought Drake in saying, hey, I'm, I'm changed. You know, I got, you know, I'm family oriented. I'm a dad now and yada, yada, yada. And Drake said, you know, while they were there, they were vibing. They were making good music. You know, he was excited. And Drake opened up to him. You know, he played in the song March, March 14th was about his child. Um, he told, he showed him pictures, you know, of his child and, 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 and kind of um, gave that, that, you know, that information that wasn't out there yet to Kanye. Um, and then. And then he gave Kanye, I mean, he gave Drake the track where he, you know, that track where Kanye was like, not saying anything like, like poopy de scoop, poop de scoop, <laughs> right? He gave that, that beat to Drake actually um, after that. So Drake was actually going to have that on his album. And then, um, you know, then Kanye invited Drake to Wisconsin or Wyoming, wherever they were. Um, and then Drake was like, when he went back there, the vibes were different because they were supposed to work on Drake stuff, but they were working all on Kanye's album. Mm. And then Drake was like, okay, you know, I guess it's a little weird, but that's cool. Um, you know, I help him out. So he was helping him write out the album and stuff. And then when he left, you know, he was like, he kind of got a text from Kanye. Like, you know, I love you, man. La, la, la. I don't take it personally. And then Kanye released that track, that Poopity Scoop mm-hmm. track, which was what he gave to Drake. So Drake was already upset about yeah. that. And, and then Pusha T comes out with the with his album, but also the, with, you know, the diss track to mm-hmm. Drake and all the information that was on there was the information that, you know, he told Kanye yeah. while they were away. And, um, you know, that really hurt Drake, you know what I'm saying? And, and, you know, Kanye used them to that way and, and to sell records or whatever it is. And, you know, you could sell and Drake was upset about it. And I'm like, okay, Kanye, that, that's not a, that's not a good look, man. That's just like, as far as character wise, yeah. it's kind of messed up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting too. Just not politically wise what he's doing, but also you know his his interpersonal relations with his peers. Yeah, because um, Common came out and that. said like I'm like ashamed to say we were friends or something something to that effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ti said he's done with him. You know, everybody's like, listen, this guy, we got to stop. I know everybody's been trying to give him a chance, but um, he's doing way more harm than good at this point, and so we gotta we gotta stop this guy. Yeah. Um, but going on to today's topic, right? Like we said, Kanye went to the president's office to talk about prison reform. Mm-hmm. And as we said, and as Kanye openly admitted, 
He knows nothing about that. Um, but we like to actually talk about this this topic today with an expert um, and somebody who knows a lot about that, which is Dr. Anthony C. Thompson, who's a professor of clinical law at NYU Law School. Um, we focus our conversation on his book, Releasing Prisoners and Redeeming Con- Communities, which focuses on prisoner reentry um, and a lot of the issues that go on with people who are recently released from incarceration and does a very in-depth look as far as what the consequences are of these actions, things like housing, things like voting. Um, things about like healthcare and disenfranchisement, all this kind of stuff, uh, all within this book. Um, so we spend the whole interview just talking about this criminal justice reform, prison reentry, and of course, prison reform. A lot of the things that Kanye was supposed to be up there talking to the president about, which we're sure he didn't do. Uh, but we think it's a good time for us to share this interview with you all so that you can understand what really needs to happen and what the realities are of people who are incarcerated and being recently released. Mm, Yes. And so when we talk about, you know, people going to talk to Trump, I think it's very important that we're not saying that black people shouldn't talk to Trump. We're saying the right people should. And so Professor Thompson would be one of those people who should be in the room, you know, if Trump is serious about it and if we're serious about it. So um, that's the distinction that we want to make. It's not that black people shouldn't talk to Trump is that if he's serious He would go to the right people. Yes, the people who are informed and study this and write books about it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not the people who openly admit they don't know anything about it. And don't read Uh, anything about it. And don't read anything. Not the people we should be talking about policy reform. All right. And I feel like the people whose lives you're discussing wouldn't appreciate that either. Uh, uh, I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) So let's take that account. But without further ado, let's get into this interview with with Dr. Thompson and we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. All right. Discussions about criminal justice reform often center around the record-sized U.S. prison population and the overrepresentation of people of color in prison. Rarely do we have conversations about the inevitable release of incarcerated individuals and how their release impacts the receiving community. Today, we tackle this discussion with Professor Anthony Thompson, author of Releasing Prisoners, Redeeming Communities, Reentry, Race, and Politics. Specifically, we discuss the issues that previously incarcerated individuals face in regard to housing, health care, and the political process, as well as how we can improve the reintegration experiences of the recently released. Welcome, Professor Thompson. Thank you for having me, and thank you for actually doing this podcast. It's very important that we get the subject matter you all are talking about out in the world. So I really appreciate you inviting me. Appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us. So, you know, generally the way we like to begin our interviews is just by asking our guests just to give our listeners a little bit of background information about yourself, um, you know, kind of what you do and how you chose your career and then just, you know, letting us know who you are. Well, thank you. I uh, grew up in Northern California, just a little bit north of Oakland, and I grew up in a primarily African-American Latino community there and, um, you know, grew up the child of a first generation, first generation immigrant from Central America and a great, great grandson of a slave. And so it was an experience that was not that different than a lot of folks in the community that I grew up in. I went 
to Harvard Law School, went to college in Chicago at Northwestern, went to Harvard Law School, and then returned back to my community with the intent of doing criminal justice and social justice work there. So I spent a decade as a public defender in the community I grew up in, um, became involved in community activism. That period of time was the mid-80s, and it was the on-ramp to what I call the crack epidemic nationally. So I saw the effects of racialized law enforcement and criminal justice policies and the effects on those communities and often the people I cared about. And after a decade of doing primarily frontline criminal justice work for indigent folks charged with crimes. I began, I went into private practice. I became a civil rights attorney. I did some entertainment law, but I was always interested in teaching. And so I taught at Stanford briefly, um, did some other teaching in the Bay Area, and then NYU one day came calling. And 23 years later, I am now teaching it. I've been teaching on this faculty for, this will start my 23rd year, and I run a center here on race and equality in the law. Um, but it's, that's kind of how I got to this space. Mm, goals. Y'all, this is goals. <laughs> it's <a> hashtag goals, <laughs> huh? <laughs> hashtag goals. Um, so, you know, thinking about our conversation, it's about reentry. And so can you actually define that for our listeners? Um, what is reentry and why is it important for us to have a conversation about it? So it's a great question. And I think different people come at the definition differently. So I'm going to talk about it in its broadest sense. Um, as a public defender, one thing I appreciated was, you know, I lived in a community, I grew, worked and lived in a community I grew up in. People came back to that community from prison or from jail. And oftentimes they would say, hey, I'm having trouble with getting a job or I'm having trouble with housing. And the public defender's office response would be, um, you don't, you know, it's not a criminal case. We can't help you. And they would go to the civil provider and the civil provider would often say, hey, those are a, a, a rise out of your, your criminal background. We do only civil matters. We can't represent people with criminal records. And so I think people that were coming out of custody, there was a huge gap in services. And we're talking about a large number of people. And I hope we get into it later, the the demographics of those people. But um, so Reentry had traditionally meant your return and reintegration from prison and from jail. Um, what has happened over time is that what we found, particularly with regard to the racialized nature of the criminal justice system, is that having a, a criminal record um, pulls you away from the community, even if you were never incarcerated. So when we think of reentry now in the contemporary context, people will talk about reentry for people who actually weren't removed from the community, but had an interface with the criminal justice system. And as a result of that interface, have a criminal record and have all of the collateral consequences that come from a criminal record um, that, that create barriers to kind of fully participating in citizenship in this country. When we talk about reentry, do you feel that it's often a topic or aspect overlooked when we talk about criminal, because a lot of conversation now talking about criminal justice, criminal justice reform, but when we're just looking about the general public, do you think it's an aspect that's often overlooked? And if so, why do you think that's the case? That's a great question. I, you know, I overlooked, I, you know, I think people I think it's invisible. It's one of those processes in our society. For the most part, people have no idea once the fanfare and negative publicity of somebody being incarcerated leaves the front page of a local paper, no one thinks about, you know, what happens. And, you know, again, I'll talk about the, the demographics of race a little bit later. But let me say that 
for the most part, it works as people are out of sight and out of mind. So we don't think about what it means when to really purposefully reintegrate someone when they've paid their debt to society. I mean, I, I think that the average American believes when people walk out of prison door that they've paid their debt to society and that they're going to get a second chance. The reality of that is that they're not going to be given a second chance and the hurdles that pl are placed in their way in almost every location in this country become almost insurmountable in trying to reintegrate into communities. So I think people just don't, they don't think about reentry. I think um, it's not something that is ever thought about in terms of the legislative process much. I think it's given a lot of lip service, but I think that the truth is that we don't, in a categorical and methodical way, think about how we remove the barriers to people reintegrating back into communities. Mm. It's, it's such an important topic because if we're not thinking about how we integrate people back into communities, um, we aren't really thinking about their success after the fact and how that could potentially land them back, you know, in a position to where they could be incarcerated again. So, wow. That's exactly right. Um, so we want to uh, really get into the meat of your book, uh, Releasing Prisoners, Redeeming Communities, Reentry, Race and Politics. Um, and you've mentioned um, that we'll talk about some demographics. And I was wondering if we could get into that conversation now. Um, can you tell us what reentry looks like for people of color, um, for people of different uh, genders, um, especially compared to more privileged populations? Um, so like people of color compared to whites, um, and maybe even men compared to women. So there's a lot of pieces to that answer. So let me, <laughs> let me pull it apart a little bit. First, with regard to race, um, racial disparities exist at every stage in the criminal justice system. So with regard to who is investigated, who is arrested, who is charged, the types of pleas that are offered and sentences are all disproportionately, um, meted out to people of color, right? So let's keep that in the background. Secondly, um, when we think about kind of reentry, I actually like to point to some work of a, of a young sociologist, Diva Pedro, wrote, writes a book uh, entitled Marked. And in that book, they use testers in a bunch of jurisdictions, Brooklyn here um, in my neck of the woods was one of them. And they sent in black and white job applicants. And what she found through her research was not only were whites with a criminal record more likely to get callbacks and interviews than blacks with a criminal record. But she found further that if you were white with a criminal record, you were more likely to get a job interview and a callback than if you were black without a criminal record. So the import and the impact of race and, and the fact that race is so much in this country's DNA can't be pulled apart from the consequences of reentry. So if we look historically, at the 70s when um, Richard Nixon was running for office. We, the, he, he was running for office on the cusp of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement for, in Vietnam. And he equated the, you know, the civil rights movement with a law and order policy and began a path of what we call dog whistle politics, which um, race may not be invoked affirmatively, but it is in the background. We've heard it through the Reagan presidency with the um, 
references to uh, welfare queens. We heard it during the first Bush administration with the um, talks about work release and work parole. Um, there, there have been a number of euphemisms for race. And so I, I raised that because what happened was during the 80s and 90s, we spent an awful lot of time incarcerating young men of color and to a, in, to a higher percentage, actually, young women of color. And, and I'll talk about women in just a minute. But what we found was that we would just pile on the penalties that had nothing to do with the underlying crime. And those would increase barriers to reentry. So, for example, if you were convicted of any type of drug offense, you had to have your license um, suspended or revoked. Um, if you were, th there were implications for child um, custody, if you were convicted of crimes that had a 22 month or longer sentence. So, there were a range of penalties that not only affected people's reentry, but disproportionately affected communities of color and poor communities. And so I think that the intersection of race and inequality there um, affected the types of policies that we put into place. And I can talk more about those later. When you, when you, so, so I think the other thing I'm going to talk about is, is kind of the communities that people are released to. In most jurisdictions by law, you have to be paroled back to the community you are incarcerated from. Um, and so what that means is when we look at disproportionate, uh, disproportionately communities of color and, and low income communities and immigrant communities, we're talking about communities that don't have resources from the outset. And so people are returning to communities that are on the brink in many respects. And so it makes um, bringing people back into families that are struggling or that are in public housing and may lose their right to to be tenants in public housing if they have somebody on the lease or somebody in the apartment that has a criminal conviction. Um, we find getting jobs and occupational licenses sometimes with a criminal conviction impossible. So there were a number of unanticipated barriers that had a, a racially sensitive impact and a class sensitive impact. Now, let's pivot and let's talk about women. So what we found is there was a period of time where both the federal sentencing guidelines and mandatory minimums became were in vogue. And one of the arguments was that we weren't treating people fairly across issues of race and class. And so it sounded great. It was a soundbite that both liberals and conservative Republicans could both embrace. So we saw a move towards reducing discretion on the part of judges. What we didn't anticipate was that we would see a large number of women of color incarcerated um, at a rate that was far greater than um, had happened in the past historically, and that notwithstanding that women going all the way back to lynching and slavery times had been treated differently than white women, it had been, it had been um, objectified in ways that were unique to women of color. Um, we still found that the criminal justice system was not sensitive to the fact that the overwhelming majority of women were the primary child care, uh, res responsible for child care and child custody, um, were often the breadwinner um, in a single parent house. And so women had the, the kind of intersectional discrimination of both, not only their racial identity, but their gender identity in which, you know, young men of color kind of were seen in some respects as kind of the natural trajectory, filling their oats. But if you're a woman of color, you're incarcerated, even in our own community, you were often seen not only as a bad person, but as a bad mother or as a bad sister or as a bad, and, and it had gender implications that I think um, we still haven't really come to grips with today. So I think women's reentry has been confounded in ways much greater than men. Um, women's prisons are often 
far flung places away from where they can have consistent family and children visitation that compounds and conflict, you know, um, makes the reentry much more difficult. I think the opportunities for employment have been more difficult for women. We Federal prisons in particular, but state prisons as well, tend to be gendered in their job offerings. Years ago, I represented one of the first women in the history of the federal system to be in a welding program. Um, and, and this was, you know, I've only been here 20 years. So it wasn't that long mm. ago. So one of the problems that we find is for women, Reentry, particularly women of color, reentry is much more difficult. And women tend to be ostracized from families at a much greater rate than men of color. And so I think um, when we look at reentry, the problems around women of color, and, and uh, you know, let, and let me just say uh, so I want to, for your listeners, really be clear. By and large, for women, we are not talking about them being incarcerated for the same class of crimes as men. I mean, by and large for women, we're talking about property crimes, crimes that reflect inequality and poverty. We're talking about crimes that reflect histories of abuse, physical and mental. And we're talking about uh, crimes that reflect a history of substance abuse. If you took all of those categories out, a substantial portion of women would not be incarcerated. So when we think about the reason for using the valuable resource of incarceration, um, public safety should be you know, out front and, and significant in our thinking, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be incarcerating so many women if that was our primary reason and not retribution. Um, but, but I think that reentry is fundamentally different for people, for women and for people who are poor than it is for, obviously for people who have opportunities. Yeah, that's really important. Um, especially talking about the women. I think, like you said, I think when women are involved in the system is like this extra, social tax or burden placed upon them compared to men. And, you know, I feel like men committing crimes is normalized in a lot of ways, but women, when it happens, women involved in the system. And like you said, most of the times the crimes are not as uh, severe as what we tend to imagine as far as criminals and stuff along those lines where people like to imagine. Um, but yeah, the, the, the repercussions and the consequences just seem to be much more traumatic, especially for women of color, intersectionality, all of that put on top of that, uh, it seems like how can you at all supersede, transcend these particular situations if you are a woman of color with a felony record trying to reintegrate back? seems like so many challenges in your, in your face. Um, yeah, the other thing, the other thing coupled to that is, you know, we no longer, um, and this is more of a function of your generation than mine, mm -hmm. quite frankly, but we, we no longer have the privacy. You know, when people come out of custody, they come out with a scarlet letter. Mm. And so everyone, you know, virtually everyone in the community and everyone as they're applying for jobs and doing other things know that they have this criminal conviction. And so being formally incarcerated in particular, where you've done time outside the community um, adds, you're absolutely right. I call it a tax in my classes, but the stigma that is associated with incarceration and with the criminal record makes it very, very difficult to, to participate in the basic things around American citizenship. Yeah, very true. And so moving on to the next kind of question, right? Um, and I think this is important because I think when we're thinking about the process of being released and going back into a community, I feel like a lot of the time it's, okay, get out, get a job. Um, and there's a, another step, a part of that, which you highlight in your, in your book, um, is the housing, right? Um, you kind of need a place to live before you can get a place to work, right? Who, where they're going to call for an interview or where they're going to send the checks or whatever the situation is. Um, and I think this is an important conversation to have because 
we really don't talk about the difficulties and challenges people, those who are recently released, have to uh, face when with housing when they're recently released. Um, and like you said earlier, a lot of the times, especially with like Michelle Alexander's book and stuff like that, uh, centers around what happened in the, the late 60s and the 70s and Nixon and the Reagan administrations and, and those kind of policies. But also in your book, you highlight how Bill Clinton contributed to that, particularly when it comes to housing policies and those uh, with the one strike year out initiative as well. So can you spend a little time talk about housing and how that's impacted and also some of the policies that make it more challenging for those recently released? Yeah, I, you know, I think that, um, Bill Clinton often, often does not get his due as to how much harm he's done to communities of color with his criminal justice policies. And you highlight one when you talk about one strike and you're out. Um, the notion that under that law and the ensuing case law, one of the key cases actually comes out of an Oakland housing project called Hud v. Rucker. And, and in that line of cases, there were individuals who committed crime. And when I say committed crime, uh, one of the cases involved uh, possession of marijuana. So we're not talking about violent crime. It was any crime. So so I think what Clinton campaigned around this legislation on the notion that violent people were in public housing. And so what people believed was going to happen was that if someone were convicted of a violent crime, they would be excluded from public housing. Um, what he got with the, con- with the, the legislature was a Congress was um, – not a violent crime, but any crime. And so let me talk about, you know, we talk about policy at 30,000 feet, but I find it helpful both as a teacher and as a lawyer to talk about the effects of that. So New York and North Carolina were the last two states in the United States to stop treating um, 15 and 16 year olds as presumptive adults in the criminal justice system. But virtually every state has the ability to certify up a teenager to adult court. So if you took New York and you saw a kid who had a conviction for any criminal conduct and that individual was 15 or 16 years old or 17 years old and always lived in public housing or public subsidized housing with his or her parents, um, they would come out of jail at Rikers or come out of prison and not be able to live in the house that they essentially had grown up in. Mm. And it, it creates this incentive to separate families, to, to keep families apart when there is a legal barrier to living in housing. Now, let me let me say that seems acute enough and difficult enough. Let me talk about another dynamic, and that is, and I know that a little bit later on, you may want to talk about parole, but just to touch on parole, parole is not early release. You're serving part of your sentence in the community. And so in virtually every jurisdiction, a, con- a condition of parole is that your house your place of residence, your car, where you live, is subject to search and seizure with or without probable cause any time of the day or night. If you think about families and the type of social pressure that that puts on families, um, housing becomes really, really difficult. We're still releasing too many people to homelessness. And I just recently saw some of the, I'm in the, I'm the co-chair of the Governor's Reentry Council here in New York, and I just saw some statistics to, su- to suggest over time we get better. But in the first 90 days, we're horrible, not only in New York State, but many states. And and homelessness confounds, as you can imagine, uh, reentry. It's, as you said earlier, if you don't have a, house, a place to live, it's hard to get a job. But it, it's also just the security. Um, I find with clients that we've had, it's very difficult if you come out of custody into a shelter. Um, the, the transient nature of that existence is very, very difficult. And, and we just haven't really come to grips with 
what it means to house people as they come out of prison and what the opportunities are. I mean, I, I think we, we have this notion of two parents, four kids or two kids and a very standard um, 1950s version of what housing should look like in America. And the reality is that that's not the model anymore. The model for affordable housing might be single residency occupancy units for people coming out. It might be smaller apartments. I mean, there's a range of experimental housing that we need to look at in order to deal with kind of some of the problems of homelessness. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that's just one example. I think, you know, when we think of reentry, if you've got people in custody and they came from situations that were tough, which got them often into the circumstances, why aren't we using that opportunity to do everything we can to put them in a position to succeed? So, for example, if there's an educational deficiency, why aren't we making the commitment of educational resources to make sure that everyone who comes out of custody graduates with a high school diploma or has a vocational skill? Um, we have the resources and the wherewithal to do that. We just don't have the political will. And some of this is a question of American values. I mean, if we talked about healthcare, right, the, the, in jail reentry in particular, uh, apart from prison, a lot, a high percentage of the people who come into contact with jails have mental health issues. And our ability to provide services, to stabilize medication, to check for TB, to do other things that are kind of public health functions seems ludicrous that we don't expend the resources to do this while folks are in custody. As it is, we're doing our adult literacy, our homelessness treatment, our mental health treatment through the lens of the criminal justice system. And we're doing that in large part because a lot of the targets of that system are people of color, poor people and immigrants. We would, you know, the average white American wouldn't dream of allowing the criminal justice system to be the funnel through which we delivered services. And, and the, it, it, listen, the best example of that is America's new compassion with the opioid epidemic. The same people who called for the death penalty around crack addiction now have this newfound compassion around the opioid epidemic because it's become their aunt, their uncle, their brother, their sister, where that compassion didn't exist 20 years ago. And I'm, you know, I'm not discounting that compassion. I'm all for compassion. But if we're going to be compassionate, let's be compassionate to everyone. Let's look at the people who are doing sentences now who were sentenced before this newfound compassion. You know, let's be compassionate about people who are in jails and places like Riker and L.A. County Jail and Cook County Jail in Chicago, the three largest mental health facilities in the country. Um, if we're going to be compassionate, let's do it in a fair way. But I think all of those things impact impact reentry. And we have to think about reentry um, as, as people are not sentenced. But as people enter the criminal justice system, we should be thinking about reentry. We should be doing diagnostic assessments for everyone that is incarcerated the second they're arrested and say, what are their needs? And begin to map out what will and, and have a better integration between community services and services that happen um, in, for folks who are incarcerated. So that there can be a flow of information and treatment that doesn't stop at the jailhouse doors or the prison doors. Mm, that's that's really important that you say that. And it's interesting, Ty and I actually had an entire episode about the opioid uh, epidemic mm -hmm. and how the response is uh, completely different from uh, what people call like, the you know, the 1980s crack era and how like, mm -hmm. yes, we need compassion in both things. And um, so um, you mentioned health care and I was wondering if you could elaborate 
on that a little bit more and maybe even connect it to our current conversations about health. Because, you know, for the previously incarcerated or for, you know, your next door neighbor, um, health care is a huge issue. Um, I actually saw an article to where a woman in New York, I think uh, her leg got caught uh between like a subway, the subway tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and she begged people not to call an ambulance because she couldn't afford it. So, you know, this is an everyday citizen who, you know, likely has not been incarcerated. So I can't even imagine uh, what the health outcomes um, and provision of care is like for uh, the previously incarcerated. So if you can, you know, just talk a little bit more about that, especially within the context of these political debates about uh, affordable care. Yeah, no, I I think that um, it's a great question. And part of our focus should be what we're doing to provide treatment to folks. I I think there are a couple different parts to that, right? I just read today um, the most outrageous thing that Tamir Rice's family was billed for the ambulance call um, to take that child to the morgue. And so it, it really provides some light on how insensitive we can be both uh, at, a, at a national level, but even locally. Um, but but that said, I, I think that um, the unfortunate fact is some of the best health care people receive, they receive while they're in custody. And we have not yet figured out how to build a bridge from custody back into the community. So be it physical health or mental health, nutritional needs, the range of things that people need to succeed once they've been out of custody, one of the things that we're finding is that um, there there isn't in the communities that I call the at-risk communities in which people are returning to, there often isn't the ability to provide health care in a way that um, takes care of the needs that folks have, particularly around mental health care needs. I think one of the things that we've taken a great step backward in the last decade is around law enforcement and folk dealing with training law enforcement to deal with people with mental health needs. We're seeing more and more people killed um, at the hands of law enforcement, particularly in communities of color, where some of the issue was whether or not the person in question, uh, the pe- person who was killed, needed mental health treatment. And we're seeing a lack of preparedness on the part of law enforcement. And then when you talk about people who are being locked up, you know, we have to think about what our values are as a country. Is the way that we want to deal with mental health needs and mental health issues in people is to incarcerate them. Is that the is that the right purpose? Um, does it even serve a retributive purpose um, to incarcerate people who are, may not be fully aware of their conduct or at least um, able to negotiate that conduct in society? And so we have to think about that. But but I think that you know increasingly what we're seeing from Washington with these attempts at um, part you know parsing down or, or getting rid of the Affordable Care Act is really an insensitivity to the fact that a lot of people won't have access to health care. And, and so I think one of the things that you can do while people are incarcerated, as I said earlier, is you can stabilize them and put them in a position to succeed um, vis-a-vis their health care needs. But, you know, health care is an expensive line item with a lot of strong lobby. And so trying to provide health care at a reasonable level for people who are perceived as, you know, the – least deserving in in communities is very, very difficult. If we want to be proactive, what we'll find is the extent to which we can provide housing and stabilize people and give them a vocational uh, chance, they're less likely to recidivate. We're less likely to have the public safety issues um, that brought us here in the first place. So some of this is an investment and how you want to think of your social investments. Um, So I think it's a great question you asked, Daphne. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> when we also talk about, and sometimes this gets, again, like we said earlier, it may get overlooked and be just invisible, right? The kind of politically disenfranchised, um, you know, those who are coming out the system in many cases may not be able to participate with things such as voting. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes many people be like, well, they committed a crime at the time. Why should they be allowed this right to vote? But how can that be detrimental to the reentry process, but also to our uh, kind of democratic ideals as a whole when we talk about these kind of things? So, Ty, it's a great question. I'm going to tell you something. You can't divorce the two those two issues. So mm-hmm. um, l- let me talk in a couple of ways. Right. So so one is um, there's some data to suggest social involvement in things like voting help people to reintegrate back into their communities uh, more seamlessly. So there's actually a legitimate strategic reason to have people vote both before they're released. And and, uh, New Hampshire and I think Vermont allow people who are in custody actually to vote. And that, that may have to do with the demographics of who's in custody in Vermont, New Hampshire, but that's another conversation. But the, the in in communities of color, by and large, um, obviously in in the jurisdictions where there are large urban centers, um, that's not true. But I want to talk about. I, I hear folks all the time, and when I speak publicly, get asked a lot about the term structural racism, and so um, I, I think conservative folks in this country are loath to. Um, provide examples. But when you talk about disenfranchisement, there's a great example. We're about to do the census in 2020. And there is a rule in the census called the usual residence rule. It applies to the military, it applies to students, and applies to people in custody. And basically what it states is on the day of the census, where you are is where you are counted for population purposes uh, on the census. Now, we know the census provides the basis for legislative representation at the state and federal level, and it provides the basis for federal money block grants to go into communities. So what we've done is in states, big states like Michigan, Illinois, New York, and California, Florida, we've created massive prisons in rural districts. So the way it functions, let's use New York since we're in New York as an example. The way it functions in New York is that folks who are incarcerated from New York City from Brooklyn, from the Bronx, from Manhattan, are taken upstate. On the day of the census, they are not counted in um, Manhattan or in New York for for purposes of census count and political representation. They're counted upstate. So you have districts in rural New York that have 10, 5, 15 prisons in their district. They would not have legislative representation if those folks who were from New York City were counted in New York City. And so it creates an increase in rural Republican, for the most part, legislators mm. who are um, pro tough on crime, pro kind of historically punitive and non-productive legislation. And they're getting money that would be better used for people trying to reenter in communities. So that the disenfranchisement piece, part of it is just, as you say, the right to vote, but part of it is structurally how we think about our democratic values and at what point we want people to live and, and be able to appreciate the benefits of citizenship in this country. And, and so if what we want to say is, look, when you come back, when you get back into your community, whether that's Oakland or L.A. or Chicago or Memphis or Miami or New York, we want you to be fully active and participate. Well, then you have to give that person the benefits of 
opportunities to work, opportunities for housing, and opportunities to vote. So for those jurisdictions that don't do that, um, it, it provides other types, both on the ground individual impediments, but also policy impediments for reentry. And so I think we've got to review a lot of that. There's a, I wrote an op-ed years ago called Democracy Behind Bars in the New York Times, and it really focused on a couple of legislative districts that had a large number of prisons in their district. And you know they often say, well, we need that commute that money from the feds to take care of the prison. Well, in fact, the Department of Corrections allocates money for taking care of the prison, so you don't need that. Um, and and it, it creates an, a, an industry for prison guards, correction officers, and correction unions in rural parts of the state. And so we can't have the criminal justice system become the employment mechanism for rural communities. Mm. It perpetuates the policies that we've done. It's unfair. It's not economical. And it doesn't make sense as we look to the future. Mm, that That is a lot to, to think about. And it also speaks to, um, like you said, how do we want to treat people upon reentry, especially if they have served their time? Like, what are we saying about uh prison and potentially rehabilitation if we aren't fully uh, enfranchising people when they leave. Um, so in, in speaking about like, um, I guess, exiting prison or, or making their way out earlier, you mentioned parole um, and you mentioned that it is actually an extension of the sentence being like served in the community. So I, and that was something I hadn't thought of before. So I was just wondering um, if you could kind of talk a little bit more about uh, parole um, and the role that it plays and experiences of those recently released, because a lot of people probably have uh, misconceptions about what parole is. Right. So we often see headlines that say so-and-so released early on parole. Right. And, what we don't realize is in the United States, there are a couple kinds of sentences, right? There are determinate sentences. Um, you will come in, you will do three years, six years, or nine years, and you'll either get the mitigated term, the midterm, or the aggravated term. And at the end of that period, you will be released. Sometimes coupled with that is good time. So you, if you got a three-year sentence, you might be released at two years and eight months. And there might be a period of time at the end of that that there could be some supervised release, right? But in New York, we have what's called indeterminate sentencing. So on most sentences, you get a minimum term, 25 to life, or you get a minimum term, or you get a term of uh, four to 12 or six to eight. And once you have served the minimum time, so let's take the 25 to life term because that's the one that gets the most headlines, right? You are, and, and that would involve a murder. You are eligible for parole. And what that means is for the most part, the parole board in many states is the primary arbiter of when release happens. So it's not that you're being released early. It's that you're being released to serve some of your sentence under community supervision. States vary widely on who is eligible for parole and what the function of the parole board is. So, and, and it is a place where, uh, just as an aside, where we see some of the most acute racial disparities in the criminal justice system upon who gets parole, parole release, and parole supervision. I'll talk about that in a second. But um, the parole board is an independent body, generally. And in New York, for example, the parole board, parole board members are nominated by the um, governor and then approved by the Senate. 
it creates an interesting dynamic in which for New York, for example, almost all of the parole board members, save a few, have law enforcement backgrounds. Um, that's, a, that's a choice, I think, that's been made in the state of New York because um, how difficult it is to get people through the Senate process. Um, I, I think that understanding what parole supervision could be and what it is is very important. We see these cases, and I can name them for you because they're on the headlines every week. We had one yesterday here in New York. But whether it's Herman Bell, who served 40 years, um, is partially disabled, and of the opinion of some of the local newspapers here in New York City and the police union should never be released, um, was legally eligible for release. And you know, people like Kathy Boudin, who is subsequent to release, has become a professor at Columbia. Everyone says she should never – and the parole board members in New York that voted for her were not reaffirmed to their positions. So parole has become acutely political in a situation that is supposed to be completely independent. And I think it's because people don't understand the role of parole. Parole's focus is legally and should be what is the public safety danger of releasing this person into community supervision. And what we find is that is really not what parole does. Parole, for the most part, the parole board and the media, um, correctional officers unions and police unions have often tried to relitigate the underlying sentence in parole. Well, that was taken care of when you were sentenced by the judge. What we want to look at now is in the time that you've been in custody, what are the ways in which you've cha- transformed your life? What are the what is educational benefits that you've taken advantage of? What have you done about health care? What have you done about staying in touch with family? There's just a litany of things that you can do to show rehabilitation. And if the role of parole, the role of, at that point of parole is not retribution, but is in fact to see whether you are a public safety threat, I have two things to say, right? One, we disproportionately are incarcerating folks of color at rates that are untenable, illegal, and unfair. And that if we looked at data, and I want to come back to this point of data, because I think many of the legislators in many states, particularly in this state, are allergic to data. But if we looked at science and we looked at data, we could virtually parole everyone over the age of 65 or 70 with virtually no public safety threat whatsoever. That would you have a huge economic impact on state taxpayers. It would have a huge impact on communities in terms of reintegrating people back into communities. And it would set a national leadership trend for how we should think about the role and function of parole. Um, but I think by and large, parole is seen as, as a, kind of a perk to give people um, when in fact it's part of our sentencing scheme here. I don't know if that answered all of your questions, Daphne, but I, I feel quite strongly about kind of how parole is used and misused in this state. And the fact that we don't train, we're not transparent, uh, we, we don't keep data the way we should so that there, people can have faith in the system. I think one, that's one of my remedies for the system is more transparency, more data collection, and the ability to audit and look at what discretionary decisions are made involving race in the mm-hmm. state. No, you definitely answered my question. <laughs> that was good. All right, so we're getting to our last couple of questions. Um, and, you know, towards the... With, a lot of these topics, we kind of want to gauge and engage our listeners in a way to think about, okay, how can we know there's a lot of issues and challenges with a lot of the things we talk about, but how can we begin to fix it? Um, and what are some solutions out there? Um, I know one briefly uh, you mentioned in the book, right? Uh, and, and I kind of know familiar with a lot of these, these specialized courts and specialized court programs uh, have been utilized in that kind of fashion. Um, and one particular are reentry courts um, that specifically 
target this issue uh, with those being released, recently released. And I know there's a few out there in New York and stuff like that. So can you just shed some light on uh, specialized court programming and reentry courts for our listeners and tell them a little bit more about what, what they actually are and their effects so, 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 Ty, I actually know that you are like one of the national experts on um, these specialized courts. So I'm a little <laughs> reluctant to jump into that space with you on the phone. But but what I will say is that um, I, I wrote a, a piece called Courting Disorder some time back, and it focuses on kind of the range of specialized courts. And what I'll say is that um, drug courts were the initial specialized courts. There's a great professor at uh, Temple, John Goldcamp, who has done, I think, the exhaustive review of drug courts. He mm-hmm. worked for Janet Reno and created the first drug court in Miami mm-hmm. um, down in Dade County in the 80s. And, and I think that where there is a defensible, recordable kind of database of information that and a treatment regimen, it makes sense to have a specialized courts. I think in some instances, specialized courts run afoul of um, the notion that cops and or prosecutors will discard or not file junk cases because if we create junk courts, there, there's always a place to send people and have them caught up in the criminal justice system. So let's put that aside for a minute. I do think that the Harlem Reentry Court um, is a good court, and I, I think it was started with the right kind of treatment principles. I, I think the danger in reentry courts um, and, and I have some friends who I'm going to upset by saying this uh, on a podcast, but I think that the danger in reentry courts is often that you have judges who become, who feel like they were personally let down um, by the person in front of them in these specialized courts. And they have so much more flexibility because people have si- often signed away certain procedural and due process rights to participate in the court. So there's not an op- option for a trial or anything like that. And so I think kind of making sure that all of the players, the probation officer or parole agent that's in that court, the judge that is in that court, the prosecutor assigned to that court and the defenders in that court. And by the way, if they don't have all those characters, um, something's wrong and that's not the right court. Um, some of these courts don't have all those players. But I, I think it, you've got to make sure that those folks are all sensitive to what's going on in the communities in which people um, are being returned, understand what services are available. I mean, look, the truth is, and this is an uncomfortable truth for many of us who toil in the fields of the criminal justice system, right? But we need services. So if my client has a right to a hearing or uh, can get these services through this specialized court, we're going to forego the hearing and get the services because we need those services. It raises separate questions of, of whether it's fair um, because these, these specialized courts are often sit, sit in communities of color, whether it's fair that we add this overlay of the criminal justice system before we provide you services. It's again, uh, you know, that's a conversation at a larger, uh, on a larger topic. But, but I think that when you can get, real employment and housing and counseling services attached to these courts, particularly these reentry courts, um, they do do some good. And and I think that they're one of, um, they're they're an arrow in the quiver that we should have, but I don't know that they're the only arrow we should have. I mean, I I think, you know, the the data suggests, and this is heresy, but the data suggests that for low-level crimes, less supervision is sometimes the right dosage. Mm-hmm. And even for more serious crimes, as people age out of criminality, again, supervision and services may be at a lower dose, if you will. So I, I think that we've had this one size fits all in, in terms of our criminal justice policy. And it's 
hurt us in, in many aspects, particularly with regard to race and inequality. The other thing that we've done is we've written criminal justice policy like the word witness, victim, and defendant are stagnant and stationary. And what we know in communities of color, immigrant and poor communities, is those are very fluid categories. And one day you're a witness, the next day you're a defendant, and the other day you're a victim. And so if we don't, if we aren't sympathetic to that understanding about how our communities are structured and how things work in our communities, these solutions get hard. But I think that the courts are one. I think, you know, I think forcing people to use data and science in making policy, um, you know, this great story about they had uh, sending young kids to boot camp. That was a fad in the 90s. It was the thing judges loved to do. And you had a lot of these um, white judges who had been in the military saying, the military changed my life. It straightened me out. So we sent kids to rural parts of the state to chop down trees and get up early and exercise and yelled at them and didn't provide them an education, didn't provide them any vocational training or substance abuse treatment. And what we often found was when we did the data study and we looked at it, people were recidivating at about the same rate, but they get up a little bit earlier and in a little better shape. So we need to be much more practical about our policies and make sure that they're based in the science and the data. And I think that'll move us along. Mm. Um, so, you know, thinking about solutions, thinking about moving forward uh, for individuals who are looking to make a difference in terms of helping uh, those who are recently released, um, where should they start? Um, what types of things should they focus on? Um, and also, is there anything um, that they should be paying attention to with regard to criminal justice policy and reform? Man, Daphne, I'd hate to take a class with you. You don't ask easy questions, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> man, so let me say, I think one place, it's a great question. It's a hard question, but it's a great question. I think one place that we should start is that we should look inside ourselves and we should look at how when we get that application, be it a graduate school application, a college application, an employment application. When we get that application and somebody has checked the box, yes, I've been incarcerated or yes, I have a conviction. Um, are we still giving that person a real shot? So I think the first place we can look is at our own biases and, and, our, and our own actions. So I think that's one place to start. I, I think depending on how ambitious you are, I think that, you know, your po podcast co-author um, does some work with formerly incarcerated people. I think that um, I spend a fair amount of my time talking to groups and formerly incarcerated folks and folks who are um, cha challenged with kind of what reentry looks like in ways that we can help them, um, depending on your expertise, um, t being aware of and focusing on what legislators are saying. If, if there is a newspaper that is publishing outrageous headlines that are cloaked in race that talk about the criminal justice system, that's not the paper you should buy. If there are elected officials that are taking a look back and not looking forward about their policy choices and, and the policies that they um, profess to want to enact, if those aren't fair, if those don't address reentry, not voting for them. You know, I'm one of those people who believes that nothing good is coming out of Washington right now. So all politics need to focus on what's happening at the local level, at the city level, the county level, and the state level. And so we have to hold people accountable for the policies 
um, both with regard to race and criminal justice that they're putting forth. And I think that there's some exciting and interesting criminal justice reform policy. I mean, when you look at our inability to deal with issues like bail, our inability to deal with issues like speedy trial or, or, dis or discovery reform, and you look at states like Louisiana and Texas, who are now looking at those issues, it want, you wonder why our legislature can't come to grips with that and can't deal with it. And it raises some really profound questions about who is representing us in Albany and in Trenton and in, you know, in all these state capitals. So I think if you're really concerned, what you can begin to do is think about how you're acting and how you feel about people with a record in a real way. And I think the other thing that you can do is start to hold people accountable in the money that you spend, in the votes that you cast, um, in, in forums. You know, it can't be about us if we're not in the conversation. And I mean that at every level. So if you're going to do policy reform and we look at the di racial disparities in the criminal justice system, you better have some folks who are formerly incarcerated in that room talking about what policy should look like. If you're talking about our communities, you better have people from our communities in that room to talk about what the effect and what those policies should look like. If you don't, that is wrong. And so that's what the challenge is now for those of us who care and for those of us who want to help change the experiences of people who've been incarcerated. We've got to begin to hold people accountable. True. That's yeah. That's a lot of good gems you just dropped right there for our listeners. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they take heed to it and, and take it with them and look up and research some of the things that go on locally. I think is important. I think a lot of the times we get um, sucked into you know the the mass media and what's going on at the federal level, but I think it's important to really. Uh, understand that a lot of change can be made and, and is made from the local level with your local politicians and also those with your neighbors and stuff like that. So it's really important. So I'm glad you really highlighted that aspect as well. <clears throat> so, you know, we really appreciate you taking out the time, Professor Thompson, to come talk with us about your book and reentry. Um, is there a place where people can, you know, meet you or find you uh, if they want to reach out to you or learn more websites, social media, stuff like that? Yeah, I so the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at the NYU School of Law is um, my home these days. And so we both have a Twitter account and a website. Um, I have my own website here at the law school at NYU. Should feel, people should feel free to reach out. Um, this work that you all are doing, the two of you, is very important. Um, getting this message out, particularly in this format, is, is new. It's cutting edge. Um, and I applaud you both for this work. Oh, we appreciate oh, thank it. you. Appreciate it. Uh, this was really awesome. Again, like Ty said, thank you for taking your time. Really enjoyed this conversation and enjoyed your book. We'll also put links to the book on there. Buy it, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me say two things. I have two two other books for y'all to look at. One is called. Um, one is a recent book, A Perilous Path, that has Sherilyn Eiffel, who is head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, and my colleague Brian Stevenson and I in a conversation about race and inequality. And that has just come out of the new press. Nice. And I have a book called Dangerous Leaders coming out in the next two weeks uh, for Sanford Press that looks at the role of leadership uh, for lawyers. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we'll definitely link those for sure. Until yes. Right. yes. Well, you all keep up the good work. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. So, Daff, reentry, reentry, reentry. Professor Thompson, what you think? How was it? Uh, hands down, one of the best interviews we've done. It was just very engaging and very informative. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike you, is is not my research interest, is not my background. So, you know, there were things that I learned uh, by reading the book and by having this conversation. Um, 
And I would also say one thing he mentioned, and I think we all need to do some soul searching uh, when we think about our biases related to people who have previously been incarcerated and are out here trying to make a life uh, for themselves. I think about a case that actually hit close to home, um, and it was a PhD applicant at Harvard um, and also at NYU. Her name is Michelle Jones, and she, you know, was accepted into these top programs. She was accepted into NYU history program and Harvard um, PhD program after she had served her term. But like during her term, she completed a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and like even published a scholarly article on her work. And after being admitted to Harvard, her admissions was, uh, they overrode uh, the admissions decision because they were afraid of the potential backlash from rejected applicants and conservative news outlets. Mm. And so for me, it asked the question of like, what does it mean to be uh, rehabilitated to show that you have changed and to still be judged by that. I mean, things worked out for her. She, you know, went to NYU, but at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, people will forever be marked if we don't allow them to change. If we don't give them opportunities, then they're going to just, you know, they're going to be forced to, potentially even go back. I, I don't know. It's just, it's upsetting just thinking about it. So. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think this is one of the reasons we want to have this conversation. We had this conversation with definitely one of the tip top people in the field. I mean, his book is excellent. Uh, my students, uh, they read excerpts from his <clears throat> chapters of his book and stuff like that uh, during my classes, because it touches on a lot of issues dealing with reentry. And like we kind of said, it's something that just goes and is, in, is invisible. Um, and it, the question like Daphne was saying is like, we have to really begin to look inwardly. And that's what Professor Thompson said as well. And check our own biases, because when we talk about punishment, it's like, okay, we punish people, but how much do we punish it? Right. When you have kids and stuff like that, you punish your kids, but you don't punish them for the rest of their lives. You know, if they hit a sibling or if they wet the bed, you try to do something to correct the behavior and then you allow them to prove that they have changed. But in our society, we don't do that. We just say, hey, you did something wrong. And now you're going to pay for it for the rest of your life. You can't get jobs. You can't get housing. You can't get health care. You can't vote. You, you, all these can't, 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 can't um, for a mistake or an issue or a behavior that can be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also put, like you said, a lot of resources in that when you talked about the voting and the job. And one of the fears is that the criminal justice system is being used and will be used as a way to for employment. Um, and that's not what we want. You know, we don't want this institution to be used to give people jobs that way. That means we have to keep it in place. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if it's not in place, then people don't have jobs and then we have a whole nother issue again. Um, and so we have to figure out how this works. And I, I think it was really important that he didn't mention the whole rural situation in prisons mm-hmm. because, you know, with the decrease of agribusinesses, which employed a lot of rural communities now replacing it with prisons now, which is employing a lot of these same individuals. Now they don't want, they need the prisons to feed their own families. Mm -hmm. And so of course they're not going to be like, no, no more prison. No, be softer on crime uh, because that's putting food on my kids, on my kids table. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's very confusing and sophisticated and complex in a lot of ways uh, and how it's all connected. But we, 
have to be make sure that we're not continuously punishing these folk that are being released um, in a lot of things. And, and, you know, I like towards the end of the conversation where he addressed and, you know, he kind of mentioned like, oh, his folks, when talking about specialized courts, may not like what we have to say. But I think we have to also critique ourselves in that regard, too, because when we compare ourselves to, like, say, the medical field, and there are issues with somebody's body, right? There could be a disease or some kind of ailment. Before a medication is given, one, it goes through a lot of rigorous testing and then, you know, just scientifically, and then they test it on people, pilot testing, and then eventually it has to get approved for it to be tested on mass audience or the general public or used uh, for that particular ailment once we know the ins and outs of it. And I feel like the same kind of idea has to be applied to our criminal justice issues. Things like reentry courts and specialized courts are being effective and are doing well. But within the field, I feel like there's this kind of taboo of, oh, we can't say anything bad about them or critique them. And I understand why, because a lot of a lot of the positives have to be said or promoted to rely on the funding. Um, but I also believe if this is a kind of medicine we're giving to fix the social ailments of talking about crime and justice, um, then I think we need to make sure we're testing them and critiquing them, not to say we want to get rid of them, but to say we want to make sure that this medicine we're prescribing is doing what it's supposed to do, mm-hmm. that is being effective. In order to do that, you do have to highlight any side effects, right? Or any weaknesses um, so that we can make a stronger medication. And so we have to kind of remove ourselves or stop being so fearful of like, oh, we can't address the weaknesses. No, we have to. Uh, otherwise, we'll see a lot a lot more damage can continuously be done. Like you said, a lot of these specialized courts are in communities of color. And so I think for those of us who are in these communities, although it's a positive thing, we also have to make be very careful and make sure more damage is not taking place in these particular environments and institutions, you know? Mm -hmm. So they need to have that academic mindset because Lord, we are accustomed to critique and we can take it and we want (laughs) to use it to like be better. So, you know, maybe they need to have that academic mindset. More more academics need to be, take part of that and say, hey, we're here not to destroy you. We're just here to make it better, make it stronger. And that's, you know, how we are. And that's what you do with anything. You know, you work out in life, you go to the gym, you, you, you're weak at one point, you feel, you feel sore, you know, but it's not at the end of the day, you're doing it. Once you recover, you're stronger than you were before. You can do more than what you could do before. So just applying that same, those same principles. Yeah. You, you got these, you got these good connections, these metaphors, you know, <laughs> so I got to get sometimes my students to understand what the what the heck I'm talking about. You know? <laughs> I thought one interesting point uh, in the conversation where Clinton was brought up, and it was uh, Professor uh, Thompson was like, you know, is and I don't know if it's because he played the saxophone or whatever it is. People used to call him the first black mm-hmm. president, but yeah, it is a conversation uh, that we don't have a lot about the the negative impact that Clinton had on the community. I do feel like Mm -hmm. it was a conversation that came up uh, regarding the 2016 election. And I do feel Mm -hmm. like uh, Hillary Clinton did experience some backlash for, although she used super predator, uh, she did say that, but I feel like she experienced some of what maybe her husband should have experienced related Mm to hit you know the crime laws that he was putting in place and so that was a conversation i felt like people started having about the clintons um when the 2016 election came around 
Yeah, for sure. Everybody was pretty much taking that anger out on Hillary. <laughs> uh, and I mean, you know, she did say some things, super predator stuff, but at the end of the day, she was not the president at the time. And, you know, Bill Clinton has to own up to what he did and how he contributed to it. Uh, but it was a tactic he used because he, he needed he needed to do that to steal the votes from the Republicans um, because liberals were seeing being too soft. So he yeah. was like, no, I'm going to be the toughest president on crime. So a lot of his policies, although we praise him for a lot of things based with, you know, the economy and stuff like that, when it comes to the crime policies, I mean, a lot of the what we see in the consequences stem from what he did while he was in office, uh, more so than somebody like uh, George Bush. And, mm-hmm. others. and I think that's what sometimes bother me, uh, bothers me about more like liberal candidates. They feel like they need to play toward those, um, I guess, more moderate conservatives. Like they feel mm-hmm. like they need to try to win those people over when what you really should be doing, reach out to the people that vote for you or can vote for you or could potentially vote for you if you put the you know right type of laws in place. And mm-hmm. you don't have to pick up the rhetoric, uh, the tough on crime, the whatever it is uh, that you might hear from more of a conservative set. Like st- stay true to the people who get you in office. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's like, oh, we need more votes. We can't beat them. So it's like, we got to join them. Yeah. Um, And like, you're kind of compromising your own ideals. I mean, of course, there has to be compromise uh, in order for, you know, progress to happen. But you have to be really careful of what you're trying to, you know, what rhetoric and ideas you're trying to adopt because you're doing your constituents a disservice in the long run, which I'm sure a lot of Trump supporters are learning as well. I don't, I don't know if they learn anything. Uh, he, that man, like he said during his campaign, he could go into Times Square and shoot somebody in the head and people wouldn't say nothing. Yeah, and when true. it comes to his supporters, it, that really honestly seems to be the case. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and if anybody wants a refresher on that, definitely check out the Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Parker interview. For sure. We spend a lot of time talking about them lovely folk. Yes. On the Trump side. <laughs> Uh, but nah, great, great interview. We appreciate Professor Thompson and all the work he has done, is doing, and will continue to do. And, um, you know, look, look these people up um, that we talk to, uh, listeners. Um, these are not just, you know, regular, you know, average Joe folk. These are people doing a lot of work in the in the community, for the community, uh, pushing um, a lot of what our agenda forward and creating opportunities uh, for these conversations to be had, but also for change to be made. Um, so just don't, you know, stop by listening to us. Google and, and see. Maybe they're in your area. Maybe there's uh, coming to a school near you to speak, um, having new books being released that you can look into these conversations a little bit more deeply. Um, and if they're on social media, like many of them are, reach out to them and have more conversations. We're here to show you that, you know, we our goal with this podcast is to be a bridge uh, mm-hmm. for you all who may not have access. And so we're the bridge. And now you have to walk across it, right? If you want to get the food or whatever, whatever resources are on the other side. Yeah. And we make it so easy for you. You know, in every single episode description, we include a list of resources, links to websites for, you know, the people that we're interviewing. If they referenced a a book or article, we link those things. So we make it easy. We make it. We built a mighty strong bridge. Yes. (laughs) Uh, One other thing I wanted to say is um, because you you heard uh, Dr. Thompson's 
academic accomplishments um, and like the accomplishments of so many other people that we've interviewed. But when you think about how connected they are to the community, there is this uh, myth, there's this fallacy that, you know, people get degrees and they're just, you know, high and mighty sitting, you know, in the ivory tower. But when it comes to, you know, black academics, most often they are using their research to create change, whether it is in policy, whether, you know, they're actually working with people every other week, like, you know, Ty does. So it's just kind of like, you know, I think this podcast hopefully is showing you that like, People aren't just, you know, getting degrees and saying like, okay, you know, that's it. We working. We put yeah, in work. working. And then and again, just to piggyback off that, I think it's just important to know for those, just for anybody involved in academia, not that it, you can do both. You can be a well-established scholar and also still be involved in the community. Um, I think this is kind of narrative that you can only do one or the other, or if you're spending too much time in a community or service related work that you can't be a productive scholar and contribute to, to that kind of thing. And it's just a lie. Um, just because some people don't do it or haven't done it, uh, that doesn't mean it can't be done or shouldn't be done. And I think that's even more pressing issue for those uh, people who are studying communities of color or who, who come from a community of color in these positions. Don't be um, you know, dis- discouraged or turned away if that's something you want to do. A lot of the scholars we have on here, in fact, most of them, if not all of them, are doing that very thing, uh, mm-hmm. being very productive in their scholarship, lead department heads, directors of certain things, being promote like crazy stuff. And they're very in tune to what's going on in the community and very involved and are willing to, to help you all and discuss and be a resource. So um, let's keep that ball rolling and, and, and show that this is a real thing and in this example, have these examples on here for you all. So. So, yeah, good point. Good point. But as always, um, continue to rate and review us uh, on iTunes at Black and Highly Dangerous. That's podcast. You can go on our website, blackandhighlydangerous.com, where you can also subscribe and you'll get weekly emails uh, when we release our new episodes. Uh, Please share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. Um, We're on uh, all uh, social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, BHD Podcast. That's simple. Um, reach out to us. Email us, um, bhcpodcast at gmail.com for any questions you may have, any topics you may want us to cover, people you may want us to reach out to. Um, and it will you know, work our best to try to make that happen. So continue to engage with us. And um, as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. <laughs>